Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hello, Stephanie. And live via telephone from Eretz Yisrael, Liel Leibowitz. A hello to you from the beautiful Inbal Hotel in Jerusalem. You sound different. Uh, this is my accent. When I'm overseas, I, I lose all my power. I sound like this all the time. Rebecca asked me this morning as we were, my daughter Rebecca, who um, who's in studio with us uh, because it's school vacation, asked us this morning, do people who know many languages think in just one of them? And I thought I would ask Liel, Liel, your, your English is just so darn good, and yet you grew up speaking... Uh, Gee, shucks. Thanks, Mark. Um... And yeah, I know. I feel like we almost understand each other. Um, do you think in English or Hebrew, Liel? I think in none of them. <laughs> I just don't think. No, for realsies. Do you, what do you What do you dream in? What yeah, do you think? Yeah, dreaming in? is the interesting one. Uh, you know, it's English. Is it? Yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah. Um, Today we'll be talking with author Daniel Oppenheimer, who may or may not be related to me. He's the author of a new book about ex-left-wingers who have moved right politically. And we'll be talking with guest Gentile Roxane Gay, author of Bad Feminist. By the way, when you say ex-left-wingers, it sounds so cool. It sounds like something out of Star Wars. It does. It does. Ex-left-wingers. It's like, what are they now? Oh, they're right-wingers? They fight the TIE fighters. No, they're flying, they're flying the, ex, the ex-left-wing fighters. Uh, <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> First, um, a few weeks ago, one of our guest Gentiles, Alice Dreger, asked as her question for our for our panel of Jewish experts, she asked, what happens to the foreskins that moils slice off of little Jewish boys' penises? The consensus was that they are to be buried, which, okay, good enough. But then we got a letter from one of our listeners that has haunted us ever since. Uh, his name is Steve Worland. He's a friend of mine from New Haven, and he, he emailed us a story that he had never told me. And I thought we had to call him and, and get him to tell it to all of you out there in unorthodox land. Steve Worland? Hello. Hey, Steve. How are you? I'm okay. So, Steve, you sent us uh, an amazing email. And by amazing... I mean, deeply, deeply, deeply troubling email. <laughs> I still have not recovered from. Tell us, tell us, a, tell us a terrifying story. So, okay, I, uh, well, I guess I should preface this a little bit by saying I have two sons. I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. The five-year-old was born uh, while we were living in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, the Moyle performed the ceremony for for his breast. He was a pediatrician. He was a member of our of the Reform uh, synagogue that we belong to. And he did a great job. He was, he was funny, as every good moil should be. Um, but when it came time for the actual deed itself, it was very uh, medical, and it's sort of his approach. You know, he had the plastic table, and he strapped the kid down, and, you know, and it was fine. He did a great job. But fast forward a few years later, when it was time for our second son, now we're living in Connecticut, we decided we wanted to go with someone who was a little bit more traditional. So we, we had a very nice Orthodox rabbi from uh, West Hartford perform the ceremony, uh, very different kind of ceremony. He was much more solemn. It wasn't funny at all. Very serious. He had some people uh, in the in the crowd in uh, in tears. I love, by the way, how these are really the two emotional options: either <laughs> really funny or completely, you know, cry worthy. Well, what else is there for a breast, right? So uh, at the end of it, my my wife is consoling the baby. I'm consoling my wife. Uh, the the Rebbitzin is consoling me. The Moyle comes over to me and looks me in the eye, and he holds up a small folded-up piece of aluminum foil. Kind of looks like a half a stick of Wrigley's or something like that. Oh. And uh, he holds it up and says, this is your son's foreskin. It is the duty of the father to bury it. So I turn my head and I look over at my wife who shrugs. And I look back at the moil. And what am I supposed to do? So I take the, the small little package, the, the foreskin, and I put it in my pocket, the, the pocket of my sports coat. 
<laughs> now, I don't wear sports coats very often, <laughs> this particular sports coat I didn't wear for another year. Uh, and fast forward a year, now I'm at a wedding, and I stick my hands into the pocket, and what do I find but the little package? Uh, <laughs> oh that <my> night, God. <laughs> that night I put it up on the bureau in my room, and I sort of forget about it again until a few weeks ago when I'm listening to, uh, after I listen to uh, the Unorthodox podcast, and uh, I'm recounting this story of how uh, you guys kind of botched the question of the guest uh, regarding what to do with the foreskin. And she runs into the room, grabs the little folded up piece of aluminum foil, and hands it to me with a big smile on her face. So it still has yet to be uh, disposed of or buried in its... Uh, and, and you have not buried it since. No, it's still up there. I don't... Uh, I, you know, the ground's been frozen. It's winter. I don't know. You know, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm beginning to think you don't want to bury that foreskin. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm not totally sure what the, the appropriate way to do it. I mean, for all I know, there is some sort of, you know, uh, official way. I, I'd be very surprised... You know, if there isn't a, you know, a bracha to go along with this, you know, there's a bracha for everything. Yeah, what, what is a bracha, like a uh, bore priha penis? Like, I, what it are you could be, that could be it. I don't know. <laughs> I will leave it to uh, to the, the host of an Orthodox to uh, do some research on this and get back. Do you bury the aluminum? Or do you take it out and bury Like, can you bury aluminum? Is that bad for the environment? Good Lord, I hope you can leave it in there. But, uh, but you know, if, if traditional Jewish burials of bodies are any indication, of course, that is without... A coffin, and without the you know the the cement lining as we do in the states, you know they bury directly in the ground. So I would assume that the aluminum foil would be a no go um, if we were to do this to the letter of uh, of the halacha. I don't know, but uh, that's a good question. Well, thank you so much uh, for for this very disturbing story. <laughs> You're very welcome. And thanks for ruining Wrigley's gum for us for yeah. life. <laughs> At least I could do no problem. All right. A little news of the Jews, everyone. Liel, Stephanie? Sure. A little news of the Jews. According to the Jerusalem Post, former Israeli President Moshe Katsav, who is in jail for uh, sexual uh, violation of women, told confidants on Monday that he was interested in mentoring former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert on how to handle incarceration, since they are both at the same prison. Katsav began serving a seven-year sentence for rape in December 2011. He could be out in December 2018. Uh, although he could go free this summer. Liel, like, is this is this a little bit, is this common for one thing that, you know, major Israeli politicians end up rooming together in Israeli jails? I mean, th- this would seem, in, in America, you know... Well, the equivalent in America is when Bernie Madoff got sentenced to, like, wherever, Butner, and I think O.J. Simpson was there. So it was like, our two star criminals, And basically. Jonathan Pollard, I believe. Yeah, like, everyone's no, but, in the same you know, prison. Wait, with Madoff and Pollard and O.J. Simpson? Madoff and Pollard were definitely there. I think there was, like, a like a Barowitz report thing that said that like he, he was bunking with O.J. Simpson. I think they were at some point. In but the Martha same... Stewart was not there at the no, time. No, she was in like Litchfield. Right. With the uh, oranges, the new black yeah. ladies. Right. But can you imagine this this Israeli situation? I mean, this is like the greatest remake of HBO's Oz of all time. <laughs> Oz. <laughs> you know, it's, it's right. Katsav coming to Olmert and saying, uh, I need to introduce you to Shiva. And Olmert <laughs> says, uh, you mean you mean Shiv? 
And Gitzhak says, no, no, Shiva. It's when all of us get together and lament our political careers. You know, they, they have a cabinet there. They could, they could like, declare war. There's like 17 ex-Israeli, like, prime minister, president, ministers, everything. It's amazing. That is, like, kind of terrifying that right. there are that many yeah. high, high-ranking Israeli officials in prison. They, they could form a party that would be not the smallest party in the Knesset, right, if all of them got together and formed a voting bloc? But it's interesting, you know, to see if they have if they have gangs. Maybe the <laughs> gangs are based on the former parties, you know. You, yeah. It's like this it's is like Likud territory. Shas, you stay away from Shas. It's Shas like Orange is the New Black. Scum. It's like Orange is the New Black with Yale Stone's character like giving Piper the main character something, and then like not giving the black inmate, and she's like, "Oh, someone will come for you." Right, right. And it's right. basically like your your former party comes to you. So like Orange is the New Black, but Yale Stone's character used to be the key figure in charge of like you know war and peace in the Middle East. Yeah, right, and right. she gives you your toothbrush and blanket. Right, and if you if you steal commissary from Yisrael Batenu, they'll cut you. Speaking of tough Jews, this is actually um, this reminds me of Jackie Mason, who did the amazing routine when I saw his Broadway stand-up show as a junior high student, which tells you what interested me when I was twelve or thirteen. I said, "Dad," I actually said, "Dad." Jackie Mason is doing a live stand, like a 60-night stand on Broadway. We've got to go. And we got standing room only. And he, of course, did his famous Ed Sullivan impersonation, which you could find on YouTube, which is brilliant. But then he also has this terrific line about tough Jews, about Jews and Italians. And he said, you know, the thing about Italians is out on the street, they'll totally fuck you up. But you put them in an army and like they can't shoot straight. Jews, on the other hand, you know, on the street, it's like (laughs) Murray, the accountant. You know, he'll just hand you his money if you look at him cross, but put him in an army, he'll destroy you. And, you know, Jackie Mason, who is about 130 right now, is still going at it. Uh, I don't know what he's doing comedy-wise, but he was on a a radio show the other day, and he said that celebrities who boycott Israel should be blacklisted, (laughs) should be blacklisted in Hollywood, which is just such an old-fashioned thing to say that anyone should be blacklisted. He said... Like they should be on the show The Blacklist? Yeah, they should have to do a walk, a three-episode arc with James Spader. Um, He said, if not for the Jews who created the industry in Hollywood, all these people would never have a job and would never be working. The Jews supported them all their lives, and the Jews make it possible for them to make a living. That's really ominous. That's like, yeah, he's basically saying we do run everything and we will end you. Also, like, is Jackie Mason still pulling strings anywhere? Well, like, that, right. This invoke this like tribe he's invoking. Everyone's like, oh no, not Jackie Mason again. Right? Is is there going to be a powwow at Jackie, like at, at Cantor's Delicatessen, where he decides who doesn't get to work anymore? Like, who coordinates? Is he the J. Edgar Hoover? Who coordinates that blacklist? By the way, Jackie Mason is one of the few people who is as orange as Donald Trump. You know, I completely disagree. I saw him at a restaurant in I think December. And he was just this lovely old man. He wasn't that orange. He was, you know, white. Did you talk to Orangish, him? you know, pale. Of course I can. By the way, Mark, the show that you went to, was it The World According to Me? It was in 1987. So he's done a yeah, couple. it must have been that. Yeah. I listened to the tape of that show probably three times a day. It was the funniest, most outrageous thing I'd ever heard in my life. So I walked up to him and told him that. And it took like half a minute for him to sort of understand you know, what it was that I was saying. But then he was very sweet and very gracious and happy about it. So as, I love that, man. As a 13-year-old in Tel Aviv, you had your headphones on and you were listening to the tapes of Jackie Mason. Uh, of ja- I, had, I had the tape. I had the, the, the yellow Sony sports Walkman. Nice. And yeah, I would walk around and, and you know, pretend that, um, that they're, you know, they're funny Jews because all the Jews around me were terrified. <laughs> we're so, so terrified. Let's take the issues of the world today. Let's start with Africa. What is the main problem in Africa? Libyan terrorism. It's happening primarily because of the issue of Palestine. It expresses the frustrations of the Arabs because they cannot fight Israel on equal terms. 
Because Israel turns out to have the toughest army, man for man, in the world today. The toughest army. That's a fact. I was in Israel. I saw that army. I couldn't believe it. I thought they were Puerto Ricans. <laughs> hey, last year, Daniel Brenner had a dream. As he slept, he heard the Klezmerim's album Streets of Gold, the 1978 classic that helped launch an American Klezmer revival. And the next day, he had this idea. Coming out of Zumba class, he thought, it's time for Klezmer aerobics, or as one might call it, Klezmerobics. And so he started this new education well, it's about to be a craze, okay? If we have anything to say about it, it's going to be a craze. Klezmer aerobics is a mashup of 80s-style aerobics classes and traditional Yiddish performance, or as he puts it, a family-friendly, interactive dance storytelling workout. Our ace intern, Rose Kaplan, reported on this for Tablet this week. It's already hit North Carolina hard. Might be coming to New York soon. Is, is any of us going to go Klezmer, Klez, well, like Klezmer size? It's like it's like Zumba, but without all like the good dancers <laughs> and like the talented moves. Like I, I, there's one video of him where he's sort of just doing like the yai dai dai hand moves, and you're like, I could do this. I mean, if they put a bunch of Cossacks chasing you, this would make perfect <laughs> That's like sense. instead of the, the, just the, the road the behind you. <laughs> right, just... as, as a large Ukrainian man with a pitchfork, <laughs> just running after you. Look, I'd run. Yeah, I'd run too. Hey, we have a deal for you. If your community, JCC, synagogue, local federation, buys 100 subscriptions to the tablet print magazine, we will come and do a live taping of Unorthodox for you in your town. If interested in this deal, send an email to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Also, if you want to subscribe to our print magazine, the easiest way to do it is just text subscribe to 66866. It's a palindrome, 66866. Next up, our Jewish guest of the week. Uh, he is the suspiciously named Daniel Oppenheimer. Uh, his book is called Exit Right, The People Who Left the Left and Reshaped the American Century. It's a group biography of six figures who, as the subtitle indicates, began as left-wingers and then moved right over their careers. Uh, it includes figures like Whitaker Chambers, Ronald Reagan, Norman Podhoritz, and Christopher Hitchens. Daniel Oppenheimer, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> great, great to meet you, Mark. Uh, Dan is my brother, and we should say that, um, for those of you wondering, nepotism is simply no problem for the show. And when Stephanie Butnick's sister comes out with her book... Um, Hi, friend. This is why so, I'm the moral compass of the show. <laughs> no siblings, no friends. No siblings with no books. No hope. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> no siblings with books to pimp. I'm um, well alone. We should also point out that there is an excerpt in running a tablet while we're on the subject of it has hashtag run. nepotiz. It has run. Yeah, no, running yes, in the like, yes. larger sense. In the we larger should, sense. We should also note that it's a great freaking book. It's great. So the book has been highly praised by the Washington Post. Um, the, the Rick Perlstein, who's this great historian of, of the right, says uh, Daniel Oppenheimer is a political essayist for the ages. Like, it's a major book. <laughs> am, I, am I supposed to validate that? Yeah. Are you feeling like you've written a major book? I'm feeling um, like I'm, I've written a book that's being taken seriously, which is pretty rewarding. So one thing that I really like about the book, it's about political culture. It's about political figures. It's about political movements. It's very easy to read. It's very accessible. It's actually very entertaining. It's a little dishy in some places, which I like. Um, <laughs> totally, yeah. it's It's amazingly accessible. And I wonder if that was something that, you know, maybe it didn't start out like that. Is that was that something in your head throughout the whole time? Yeah, it was. And I, I think, you know, when, when I think about sort of influences on the book, I think uh, one that people might not assume or anticipate is um, David Foster Wallace, uh, whose nonfiction I'm a huge fan of, and I, who I think was this real master 
of taking fairly complex intellectual labyrinthine topics and writing it in this way that felt like you were just having a conversation with them. So yeah, absolutely. It was something that I was aspiring to. I think that's my orientation. Like I like dishing about, I like thinking about heavy intellectual matters, but I like dishing about them. I like sort of thinking about them as part of an exciting, interesting life. All right. Because I'm a genuine fan, uh, I'm I'm not just saying this. It's a great book. You know, it, it really is a very beautifully written, very thoughtful, serious work. With that aside... Um, <laughs> I would now like to press uh, a charge, which I bring to the older Mr. Oppenheimer. Right now I'm implicated in frequently. everything likely. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but, but which I felt very strongly reading this book. And, and because our time is short, we don't have the, the leisure of, of the long, long, long conversations that Mark and I have every you know three days. Oh, it's exhausting. Uh, Ms. Stephanie could attest to that. <laughs> uh, I, I will do it as vulgarly as possible. Uh, at, at times it seems as if that the subject, the, the emotional... Uh, to, to use a, a current that goes through the book, the really erotic charge uh, <laughs> of, of this conversion from right to left uh, was being described from this vantage point, which was uh, kind of oddly yearning, but not ever uh, experienced. Uh, you know, it, it was like to be super vulgar, you know, like like someone chronicling an orgasm, never having touched a woman. Uh, <laughs> you and Mark are not believers. You're not big believers. Uh, and, and here you are talking about people who are burning with real faith. What do you think of that? I think that's dead on. Can I just can I just pat you on the back and say that I think that's dead on and and, and there was physically that... and metaphorically, <laughs> sure. If you can reach around to find his back, you can. <laughs> oh, <laughs> ah, nicely done. I just had to get that in. Go ahead, um, Dan. Yes, I am fascinated by people who are believers. I'm uh, who are sort of deep believers who can attach themselves to a party, to a movement, to a cause. I'm envious of them to a certain extent. Temperamentally, I will never be one. Um, but there's there seems like there's an excitement to that life, maybe a, or an erotic charge to that life uh, that I will never uh, from which I will never sip. Who in this book moved you most? Who who really kind of left you up at night thinking, you know, damn, I I wished that was you know, true for me. Um, I think David Horowitz moved me enormously, though, though not in a way that I thought that I wanted to be a part of it. But <laughs> but but um, the story, the David Horowitz story in the book is that basically he was a lefty. He had sort of been in a lot of different places on the left. And, and the last one was was in alliance with the Black Panthers in Oakland and in friendship with Huey Newton. And what happened is that he recommended a woman who'd worked for him at the journal he edited Ramparts for a job with the Panthers. And she went to work for them. Uh, a few months later, she disappeared and her body washed up on the shore of the bay. And it became pretty apparent that the Panthers had done it. And Horowitz fell apart for about five years. He blew up his marriage. Um, he started drinking pretty heavily. He almost died when he was like so depressed that he was just idling in his car at a train crossing. Uh, I, I find his politics on the other ultimate other side of his conversion um, pretty horrific, but that experience was was just traumatic and painful um, and sincere. And and he, if you talk to Horowitz now or go to see him speak, the pain is just still right there, right right beneath the surface. Right. And all it takes is a little prick for it to sort of come gushing out. So even listening to this answer, I, I see or hear this this uh, meticulous attention to the intricacies of emotional psychological, uh, you know, uh, makeup, but. What's sort of missing for me and what I, I'm really wondering if you thought about in, in any concrete way, because I know Mark often 
looks at it as sort of an encumbrance to to a, a more beautiful and gentle universe. W- were the actual, you know, tribulations of, you know, geopolitical <laughs> developments, you know, the Soviet Union wasn't just an idea. Uh, it wasn't just a, an inspiration or a muse for books. It was a real evil empire that did real evil things to a lot of people. The same thing could be said for, you know, 9-11, which moves Christopher Hitchens, the last character in the book. Do, do, you, do, do you feel that? Are you thinking about that when you write? I'm thinking about it to some extent, but I also think that I'm probably not the person or the writer to sort of capture the intensity of that um, to the extent that you might want. And just to give a kind of odd example of that and, and how ill-equipped I am to sort of render judgment or, or uh, passionate indictment of of those these great evils, I've been writing about Donald Trump recently. And, <laughs> and, and the more I read about Donald Trump, the more empathetic... I become and I start sort of constructing a narrative in my head of, you know, um, of all the the tough times he's been through and and what his internal experience (laughs) must have been during his divorce and his bankruptcy. The struggle is real for that one. And I lose sight. His daughter married a Jew. (laughs) I lose sight. I lose sight very quickly of these sort of horrific horrifically sort of racist, sexist, awful things that he said. And, you know, and I can step back and, and recognize them. But but from when I would write about Donald Trump, it would be from this place of empathy. So, you know, again, the Soviet Union, I mean, you know, forget about it. I would probably, if I started writing about Stalin, I would probably You'd start. You'd probably grow a mustache. Uh, I'd probably grow a mustache and start, like, thinking about how hard his childhood was, and, you know. So did, did this book make you a little bit Republican? <laughs> Just a little bit? Can I send you an NRA membership now? Um, the National Review. Bag. I did a podcast with National Review. They offered to, to send me a subscription if they thought it would bring me over to the other side. No, no. And, it, you know, in a sense, the opposite. I mean, it increased my empathy for the other side, but it also kind of enabled me to feel I've tested my beliefs against, you know, again, I've, I've sort of flirted with the dark side <laughs> and, and, re, and remain remain a Jedi in good standing. So what, what's your, what most surprised you about the book? I mean, there's I like the scene where... Norman Podoritz gets the call from Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg because they want him to come over and like basically like brawl. <laughs> I've written a, bu- a bunch of not so nice stuff. By the way, him. I do that to Lee Olson. I'll be like, Leo, could you stay after the editorial meeting? I just want to brawl with you. Right. It's just like sometimes you need a good brawl. But, but I like right. that Jack Kerouac's girlfriend called. I yeah. it's like, <laughs> like he like thought he was being pranked. So yeah, what surprised you? Um, one thing that surprised me, and it, it's not as, as sort of salacious as the the Allen Ginsberg Norman Podoritz argument. Um, but if you're interested in that, you should read about it in Tablet, right? Because that's what that's precisely what's excerpted. Um, Whitaker Chambers, who's been just just how much I uh, liked Whitaker Chambers, who who has been, I think, caricatured uh, in history in part just because of the the times he was caught up in and the, the battles between communist and anti-communist. He was caricatured as a kind of opportunistic, sort of sleazy uh, ex-spy snitch. And in fact, as a as a as a person, as a temperament, he was much more a, a tortured artist. I mean, he was much more like the people in this room than his sort of great nemesis, Alger Hiss, who was just this total kind of yeah. stuffed shirt, you know, uh, repressed, uh, pretty boring type. Who I think, whose you know, great enthusiasm in life was bird watching. Um, I mean, that's Leal's great enthusiasm. Oh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It's totally mystifying, right? Having said a couple of weeks ago that museums are boring, I'll now say bird watching is boring. But 
I was actually surprised that you said museums are boring. By the way. No, because I keep it real. To, to the ignoramus brigade, uh, the museum people are, are docile. They won't come after you. <laughs> having, having offended the bird watchers? <laughs> man, there's a fatwa. And they like know. will wait for you outside there's, your there's office. There's a they bird fatwa. Um, well, I would love to hang with my brother forever. He has many other high-powered events to get to. Um, I, I, have, I have another question. You have two soon-to-be three children. Yeah. Are you going to have more children thereafter? No. Is is there anything you would like to share about your uh, medical decisions? So, so I haven't scheduled it yet, but but somewhere in the near future is is a trip to Austin, Texas. I live in Austin, to Austin, uh, Texas's number one vasectomist. I don't know if that's a word. And his name is his name is Doctor Dick Chop. <laughs> Honest to God, listeners, you go, you're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> you can go and and what's so awesome about it is you can go on his website. It's Chop, C-H-O-P-P. You can go on his website on, and on his bio, it says, Dr. Richard, parentheses, Dick Chop. So he totally, he owns it. Wow. You know, the, the Mr. and Mrs. Chop have, have their firstborn. <laughs> I was like, I think he's going to be a concert pianist. And the dad's like, no, honey, I think it's been decided. He's a urologist. Um, so Dr. Chop, you know, here I come. Put, right. me, put me on the calendar. Freebie for, for you for giving me free. <laughs> Dr. Chop, I, I just give you free publicity to the millions of unorthodox listeners. I don't think he, need, I don't think he needs to work. <laughs> like, how could you get a vasectomy in, in Austin and from not? From anyone else. From anyone else. <laughs> and I just don't think that would be acceptable. All right, Brother Daniel, thank you for coming on Orthodox. Brother Mark, once again. Our guest Gentile this week is Roxanne Gay. Roxanne is an acclaimed essayist and novelist and a world champion tweeter. Our, our producer Sarah wrote world champion. I actually, I don't know if there's a world championships for that, but. Oh my God, of course there is. There's, <laughs> what do you, what do you win? I mean, just an iPhone? I mean. Uh, you win money. <laughs> you win money. She's also a professor of English at Purdue University in Indiana and a competitive Scrabble player whose average score I read is about 350. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's about right. So, I mean, how? first of all, we're going to get to your book, Bad Feminist. We're going to get to the book that you're working on. But I can't, like, there's nothing more important than that we get to Scrabble. And I'm, I'm curious, like, first of all, where do you rank? Like, in, I, they rank Scrabble players, right? How, where, where do you rank in the country right now? Oh, gosh. You know, I haven't played in a tournament in a long time. But the last time I checked, I think I ranked, I was in the 700s. That's really good, huh? I mean, yeah, it's not bad. It's, it's not, not bad. bad. I mean, there are, given the number of players, but it's not great either. I mean, do you feel like if you put in serious study, if you just said, okay, screw this writing thing, like it was nice while it lasted, but I'm going into deep Scrabble study, you know, I'm taking a sabbatical to get, just get my game as good as it could get. How good do you think, what, what would that do for your game? Hello? Can you hear you now? Can Mark? you hear us now? I'm sorry, Rox- Roxanne, can you hear me now? Now I can't hear anyone. Hi. Okay, great. Let's forge ahead. So we kicked Liel off the line. We now have you on the better line. So I was just asking, like, if all you did was full-time Scrabble study, if you decided to take a sabbatical and just st- up your Scrabble game, how, how much of a difference would that make? Oh, it would make a huge difference because I'd have time to get my word study in to really make it and really, I think, crack the top 100 
you need to do a lot of word studying. And I just don't have the time. Any tips for our listeners? Like, what, what's the, what are the three things that a mediocre Scrabble player should know? What do we tend to get wrong? I think people use their S's and their blanks on words that are too low in point value. And oftentimes people don't play strategically enough. It's actually more like chess than a word game. You have to really think about word placement and what you're leaving open for your opponent. So it's really good to play a closed board so that they're limited. Mm -hmm. And the little words can really get you out of a bind. So it's as important to know the little words as it is to learn like those stems and play for bingos. Okay. What's your favorite two-letter word? Uh, my favorite two-letter word is AA. Oh, that's a good one. I didn't know about what that. What is that? I have no idea. <laughs> I rarely know the meanings. I just <laughs> memorize the combination. <laughs> On the way over here to the studio, I was talking with my nine-year-old daughter who, and I was talking about your book, and I said it's called Bad Feminist, and she said, what does that mean? I thought I'd actually put, I mean, I've read the book, but I thought I'd put that question to you. How do you explain that? Yeah, that's a good question, because the title is one of those things that got absolutely out of control which is fine. It happened in a good way. But as I was thinking about my feminism to write the title essay, I was just thinking, I really believe in feminism. And uh, that was remarkable to me that I had gotten to a place in my life where I could openly say that and feel very comfortable saying that. But then I looked at some of my inconsistencies and I thought, oh, but I'm not very good at it. So I thought, oh, bad feminist. So a bad feminist, I think, is a person who is well-intended and who very much believes that women uh, should be able to move through the world as freely as men. But uh, she's also not going to hold herself to unrealistic expectations uh, about perfection. And so I find that it is a, a comfortable place to embrace feminism, but to also embrace my flaws. I mean, I would hope that would be everyone, right? I mean, w nobody's nobody's fully consistent all the time, right? Shouldn't we all aspire to be comfortable being bad, whatever isms we are? Absolutely. The challenge with feminism is, I think, because so much has been at stake for feminism throughout history, that the movement can be very rigid and very intolerant of people who don't walk the walk 100% of the time. And so creating this kind of space, and feminism in particular, has been very necessary for a lot of women. Uh, that obviously brings up the Hillary-Bernie situation right now. Any thoughts on that? You know, as a Democrat, I think we have an embarrassment of riches in terms of our two candidates. Uh, they're both, I think, great. I, I'm definitely a Hillary girl, but I also recognize the merits of Senator Sanders and I think what has happened is absurd, and it's a shame um, that the political process is being warped by spokespeople for both of the candidates, the Bernie bros on the one side, and then the recent comments of Madeleine Albright and Gloria Steinem, who I think are good people that <laughs> just said bad things and then had those bad things amplified to an unnatural degree. And again, we see feminism being held to this ridiculous standard where Gloria Steinem was making a joke, and not a great one, and she apologized. Mm -hmm. But she, you know, are people, I was asked on CNN, do you think this was um, pushed feminism back? 
one comment. Like, the threshold is that low. <laughs> yeah, like, if things are that shaky. Yeah. And so, you know, there's every day I'm reaffirmed in this idea that clearly we need to talk about feminism in a more realistic way. So what about these young celebrities who are sort of saying, oh, I'm, I don't like to call myself a feminist. I don't like those labels. Without, without, oh. And they seem to not recognize like, what fem- the feminist movement has done to allow them to get where they are in a way that's like, so disjointed. I think we need to stop asking young celebrities what they think about feminism. (laughs) I mean, we ask them these questions when they are oftentimes ill-prepared to answer them. And, you know, I just don't care what Shailene Woodley, for example, she (laughs) stepped in it. Like, I really could care less what she thinks about feminism. Right. We set these young women up to say very stupid things. We really need to look at why we're, we're asking them these questions. Um, I also prefer to ask them better questions like, how has feminism made your life possible? Mm. Like, I prefer to give them more active questions where they truly have to engage with the idea of feminism. And they can't just offer a yes or no, you know, it's not multiple choice at this point. So, um, Hey, can you tell us about the book you're working on now? Right now I'm working on a nonfiction book, a memoir called Hunger. And... It's a memoir of my body, and so it's a look at trauma and obesity and uh, what it means to live in the world in an obese body. And when's that coming out? Do we know yet? Yes, it's coming out, well, theoretically, on June 14th. (laughs) Wow. We should not not detain you then. Sounds like you have a a manuscript (laughs) to get back to. I am finishing it up right now. It's been a difficult book to write, Mm -hmm. and so I am still working on it, but... I am also excited for it to make its way into the world. Um, I have good news for you. You had sent us the question to our expert panel of Jews of whether it's true that tattooed people such as yourself cannot be buried in a Jewish cemetery. And that's actually like a major urban legend. And I want you to know that if you ever convert to Judaism and want to be buried in one of our cemeteries, your tattoos will be no obstacle whatsoever. Oh, excellent. That's really good news. So just stay in touch. I think about it a lot. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Roxanne. Take care. Thank you, Mark. A couple of opportunities to see unorthodox podcasters live and, you know, touch the hems of our garments, get some hugs from us. On April 7th at the Oshman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, uh, we will be doing unorthodox live and on stage. So grab a gang of your bros or gal pals. Make it an unorthodox night. Do something a little different. The information is at paloaltojcc.org. And the whole Bay Area is invited. I mean, from... From Oregon to L.A., just just come on down because we we're we're gonna have fun. We're all taking a few extra days in the Bay Area. We're gonna our our spouses aren't coming with us. We're gonna watch what's that show with Abby and Broad Broad City. We're gonna watch Broad. We're gonna binge watch Broad City. <laughs> okay, you're definitely watching Broad City. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make lots of minions. I and mean, it is gonna be off the hook. But first, March sixth at Temple Emanuel in Andover, Massachusetts, I will be delivering the Fact Scholar Lecture. I'll be talking about Jews in the election season. You can find out more at templeemmanuel.net. That's not the shack. Like, I thought it was like a it's lecture not, with Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal. And it's not Shake Shack. It's okay. Mr. It's Shack. Sh- oh, okay. Uh, some closing thoughts. Any mazel tovs, thank yous, prayers? Liel? I have both. Uh, I would like to warmly thank the Inbal Hotel overlooking the gorgeous old city here in Jerusalem for their hospitality today. 
And my mazel tov is to uh, the great Israeli member of Knesset, Amir Ochana, who yesterday founded the Israeli equivalent of the National Rifle Association. I was there, and it was glorious. Why do you even need that in Israel, where everyone does army service, has a gun permit, and has a gun? Well, because, uh, stupidly, they tried to take guns away from people, thinking that would solve things. And then some people with knives came and started stabbing other people, and now you kind of realize you need more guns, which so, I've been telling you so all the, along. So the, the, knife, the knife of Fada gave birth to the Israeli NRA? Uh, yeah. That is interesting. Stephanie? Good, well, good things do happen. Congrats to you on finally getting like the NRA plug into this episode. It, like It's really, really <laughs> down to the wire. <laughs> I have a mazel tov um, for tablet contributing editor Manish Chana, who has a great series up on our blog. Each week he features black Jews who are not Rashida Jones or Drake uh, for um, Black History Month. And he was on um, Tablet's other podcast, Vox Tablet, this this week and sort of sort of shared some knowledge and, and expanded our minds a little bit in a way that I think is actually very important and great. And he's 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 great. He's a lot of fun. So and is himself a Jew of the black persuasion yes. and a black of the Jew persuasion. Yes. So he knows whereof <laughs> he speaks. Uh, my mazel tov is for Shulam Dean, who asked us to find him a date for the National Jewish Book Awards. I'm pleased to announce that we found him one. I have put the two of them in touch. I believe they're coordinating their uh, runway outfits right now. I hope he's going to know. Like, there definitely is no red carpet there. I've been. You've been? I've been. <laughs> no, I mean, the question is, will he be able to get in with all the paparazzi at the National Jewish Book Awards? So, it's just us with our cell phones. That's right. So, uh, By the look- way, is the National Ju- Jewish Book Awards like the Oscars? Do you get like a $100,000 trip to Israel also for winning? Yeah, the swag bag is amazing. Actually, the- no, all the winners' books are on all the tables. And so everyone, like, jockeys for, like, the... Syed Kashua book, like, you know. So you walk out with an armful of books. Yeah, armful of books. Um, That's right. And a mazel tov to all of the Oscar nominees in the five major categories who in their swag bags get a voucher for a free trip, a luxury trip to Israel, right? Yeah, Liel's leading them, I think. I'm waiting for them right here. I'm going to be here until the Leo, Leo's on the plane. So this is going to be better accommodations than the birthright trip. Is yes, what you're, they'll be so. sleeping only one to a room, not well, four. They still have Bedouin tent night, though. That's when, you know, things things go down. All right. We love mail. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Be warned, we might read it on the air. And hey, if you haven't listened to our Valentine's Day episode yet, in which we interviewed the fabulous Cantor Shira Ginsburg, um, who is looking for her beshared, who's looking for a mate, you have to listen to it. We've already gotten a bunch of suggestions for whom to set her up with, but we really want to be very, very discerning about this. So if you want to suggest yourself uh, or another man who you think is worthy of Shira, uh, please write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Unorthodox is hosted by Liel Leibowitz, Stephanie Butnick, and my dad, Mark Oppenheimer. It is edited by Julie Subrin and produced by Sarah Ivory and Alyssa Goldstein. Rabbinic supervision this week by Cantor Shira Ginsburg. Kosher slaughtering by Shira Shrini Boston. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. To get our newsletter, just shoot an email to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and ask for it. Shalom, friends. Thank you.